Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Uh, even if I can only see half your faces again. It's probably good. Can't tell who's yawning or frowning or whatever. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, joyous week around here. Uh, welcome Wyatt Lee Kessler, uh, born to Matt and Trina on Tuesday. Uh, welcome them to the family, and uh, all reports seem to be that uh, mom and baby are doing well. Six pounds, six ounces, was that the, the stats that I received? So yeah, we're going to rejoice with them, and we'll look forward to uh, meeting them hopefully uh, someday soon. Uh, and again, as we prayed, uh, it was also... Uh, uh, a sad week, a somber week as well, too. It's always a somber time gathering together for the worship for the first time without uh, a beloved member of our, our church family. And uh, on Monday morning, uh, Lois Dragon ended her uh, long, long drawn-out uh, battle with a rare lung disease. Uh, she died and entered into the presence of the Lord. Uh, Lois certainly was a very faithful follower of Jesus, a very faithful witness uh, to Christ, uh, even to the very end in these uh, latter years where she could be found often, <laughs> uh, witnessing to doctors and nurses and roommates in hospitals. Uh, certainly her and Dennis were good kingdom servants with their home, the way they opened their home to many foster children, adopted some of them even. Uh, Lois was a faithful participant here at Grace Church. Every time I would visit with her, she would always ask about specific people by name, ask about things that were going on, things that we were doing here, how she could be praying. Uh, and she just always was a good, such a, just a good encouragement to me. I would go visit and uh, often come away very challenged and encouraged. Uh, not to mention she had a great sense of humor, so <laughs> we would laugh a lot. So I'm going to uh, miss that very much. Um, but uh, you can be praying for Dennis and for the family uh, as they consider, uh, continue to grieve. Um, but certainly uh, we're not in any way grieving for Lois this morning who uh, has ended her long battle uh, with her physical weakness that she's endured. And uh, she is enjoying that which uh, she very much so uh, longed for uh, in these, these latter years, uh, being in the presence of her loving and gracious Savior. So, with that said, uh, let's uh, turn to the Lord's Word this morning. Uh, and you notice uh, we're, we're circling back around one last time here before we move on uh, to the Christmas story, or at least a part of the Christmas story. Uh, we're doing that for two reasons. One, I need one more week. Uh, just to prep for our next sermon series, which is going to be on the book of Revelation, uh, which is something I'm very uh, very much looking forward to. Uh, I think the book of Revelation is eminently uh, practical for the church and just has such a strong challenge and encouragement for the church, so I'm excited to dive into that uh, with you all. However, uh, it is a beast of a book, and not so much in terms of the content of what's in it, but how it is written. It literally is a uh, it's, it's a literary masterpiece, and not just in the Bible, but in all of ancient literature, and I just want to make sure I do that uh, good justice. So taking one more week to prep for that, uh, that's part of the reason. The other reason is just because uh, <clears throat> the Christmas story 
it's just, it's, it's always such a profound and remarkable story, which is always good for us to, to stop and to remember, to reflect on, and to consider the challenges that it poses to us, especially as we start launch off into a new year. Uh, I mentioned to you guys, uh, you know, that we, during the Christmas season, we like to drive around and just hop in the car in the evening and go look at Christmas lights, you know, like to look online, where's the, you know, latest home that people have discovered. I think actually Heather Ermel sent us a list of some of the best uh, houses and lawns with Christmas lights to go check out, right? And so during any given night of the week, we just hop in the car and go check out a new house. And... You know, something that I guess just stood out to me this year, or I don't know, it caught my attention more this year than it has in years past, right? You go up to a home, and oftentimes, in many of these homes, if not maybe the majority of these homes that we happen to visit this, or, you know, pop in on, right, you see these elaborate light displays, inflatables, statues, you know, reindeer and sleigh, and, you know, lights all over the place. You can see it from a mile away. And then, you know, somewhere just kind of, you know, uh, in the midst of this, or maybe nestled off to the side, or maybe even up in the front, there would be a nativity scene, right? And there'd be Mary and Joseph, you know, baby Jesus in a manger, some sheep, donkeys, cattle, whatever. And I don't know, for whatever reason, this year, it just seemed to stand out to me just a little bit more. It's just something of a little bit of an odd scene, right? You're looking at this, you're looking at inflatable Santas, inflatable Snoopies, inflatable Minions, right? And there, right then in the middle of it, is, you know, this nativity scene. Which, on the one hand, I, I, I get, I totally understand, right? That's what Christmas is in America, right? It's this... Good season of good cheer and festivities and fun family traditions and lights and inflatables and all this sort of stuff. And it is the celebration of this wild news of the incarnation of God taking on human flesh and being born into a broken world to rescue and redeem that world. Right, but of course the danger, or the possible danger, always is that that miracle of the incarnation would somehow be overshadowed by everything else. Or that the incredible news of the incarnation would sort of just be sort of like blended in to, to the backdrop of the, just the general good cheer and the lights and the inflatables. Oh, look, there's Santa, there's Snoopy, there's an ethnically incorrect Mary and Joseph. Look, look at it as, isn't that great, right? But the thing is, right, this story, it... Well, or here's the danger, is that the story can get tamed down as you blend it in with just the general festivities of the Christmas season here. But the thing is, this story is anything but tame. It's a wild story. I mean, you just think about the characters in this story. You can just start there. Right? Mary and Joseph, these two peasant middle schoolers from some backwoods no-name town of Nazareth, this town that people would apparently go around saying, what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? Or shepherds, these mangy sort of social outcasts that roamed the hills and slept with their herds at night, right? These are some of the ones who first hear this incredible news from heaven's angel choir that comes to them, announces the birth of Christ. And so they're right there alongside them in the manger scene. Right, so strange characters. And then you, you can consider the songs that are just flowing off the lips of people, angels, in reaction to this. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, and the thing is, 
We hear that with our modern ears, and we think, hey, it's great news. This baby has come to restore peace between humanity and their creator God, which it is. It certainly is all of that. But man, that, that message there of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that was a that was a bold statement in the ancient world. It was actually a very politically charged statement as well, too. Right? In that context, it was the Roman Empire that was going throughout the whole known world and publishing this Evangelion, quite literally the gospel of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that had been spread all across the world thanks to its savior, Julius Caesar, or thanks to the divine son of Caesar, Caesar Augustus. In other words, this message from the angels would be like them coming today and saying, glory to God on the highest who has come to really make America great again. Right? We would say, oh, isn't that really nice? But ah, there's a political statement in there being made. I can see that. What do you think of Mary's song? After the angel tells her the incredible news. It's a song that starts off normal, tame enough. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, Blessed is he who has considered my humble estate. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Right? But then it starts to take this almost weird social activist refrain to it where she starts to say, and God is bringing down the mighty and the proud and lifting up the weak and the humble. And God is filling the hungry and the poor with good things and sending away the rich empty. What is that all about? Again, the point is, this is anything but a tame story. This is a story that quite literally is meant to flip the world on its head and has profound implications. It doesn't blend in well. And so part of my interest this morning is just to kind of pull it out of the shadows, pull it out from just blending it, just remember it, to see it again, and to consider what it poses for us as the church, the followers of this Christ, into the new year. And uh, the way we're going to do that, we're just going to look at this story, and we're going to look at the three sets of characters in here. And in particular, I'm interested in the reactions that they have to this one who was born. So first of all, right, what first set of characters would be these wise men from the east who are coming? Familiar song we sing, We Three Kings from Orion R. Uh, probably the thing is, they're not probably actually kings, and they're most certainly not coming from the Orient uh, when the passage refers to them as coming from the east most likely means just to the east of Israel. So we're talking probably either Persia here or Arabia. In fact, uh, the actual word for wise men in the Greek, it's the word magi, which actually probably comes from a Persian word. Right? So these are probably Persian, well, basically they're Arab individuals who are traveling at considerable distance to come see this baby Jesus. And if you want to understand the idea of magi, if you know your Old Testament, just think about the stories of Daniel or Joseph, right? Remember when Israel gets taken into captivity into Babylon for 70 years? Uh, Daniel is caught up in that and some of his friends. And Nebuchadnezzar identifies them as some of the best and the brightest out of Israel. And so he takes them and puts them into his court of magi, which are basically these guys who you know, are interpreters of dreams and omens Uh, They're gifted in astrology. They're gifted in the magical arts, if you will. And, you know, in the book of Daniel, these are shady characters as well, too. Right? You remember how they plotted 
schemed against Daniel. They wanted to have him killed because of his devotion and his worship of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. Right, which is all to say that, that these guys, they wouldn't have a very significant reputation in Israel, to say the least at this time, right? They're foreigners, they're non-Israelites, for first of all. They're Arabs coming at a considerable distance. They're astrologers gifted in the magical arts, which, which generally frowned upon in Israel. And they have a shady reputation going all the way back to the days of the Babylonian captivity. In other words, these would be not the people you would expect to see gathered around Ismail's, Israel's Messiah. And yet, they leave their homes behind, travel a considerable distance. Dare we even say they choose to go into something of a mini-exile so that they can come and find this one who's, you know, who some star is telling is, is the king. It's interesting that God meets these pagan astrologers where they are searching and wherever they are lurking, looking. And this God gives them a sign, leads them to Bethlehem to find this baby. And so they come at a long distance. They come, they bring their costliest treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are not ordinary gifts. I don't need to tell you that. These are not uh, you know, pencil boxes and fuzzy sweaters that your old Aunt Matilda would give you on Christmas. right? These are... These are luxury items that only those who are most well-to-do in the society had access to. And these were items that were reserved or given over only to those who were worthy of the deepest devotion and respect. All right, so what's their reaction? Get up and travel a long distance. Bring with them their costliest treasures. And when they finally find this child, they fall on their faces, prostrate before him in worship. And they rejoice. They rejoice with exceedingly great joy. They travel a long distance. They're laying aside their costliest treasures. They're on their face in worship. And in all of this, they're rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. All right, so that's the wise men and their reaction. Another character in this little plot today would be Herod. Uh, Herod is a fascinating historical character. If you ever get a chance, go read the Wikipedia page, or I, don't, I assume it's on there, Wikipedia page on, on Herod. Uh, this is a guy who's got a, a long list of accomplishments, achievements, accolades. Uh, Israel at the time, even still today, would be littered with some of his you know, building accomplishments, some of the uh, amphitheaters and fountains and parks and fortifications and palaces. He had more luxurious palaces built than even Caesar in Rome. And Herod, he's something of a political genius, right? Uh, you know, if you understand a little bit of your history back then, this is a little bit of a turbulent time in Roman history. Uh, Herod is a puppet king, by the way, of Rome and Israel. He's, he's Jewish. He's partly Arab as well, too. But he's Jewish, and he's a puppet king installed by Rome in Israel. And Rome is a little bit of a turbulent time politically. This is not too long after, right, as the assassination of Julius Caesar and then the mini little civil war that takes place. Herod manages not only to survive all of that political infighting, he thrives in it. Or he thrives even in the politically turbulent climate of, of Israel, where you have, you know, on the one hand, scribes and Pharisees, on the other hand, you have zealots and you have Hellenistic Jewish people, right? Herod just, he's a master. 
politically, he's got major accomplishments. Okay, but the thing about Herod is he was maniacal about his kingdom and his power. He was paranoid about anyone or anything who posed even the slightest threat to the life that he had built. He was consumed with protecting that. Right? He didn't, he didn't hesitate to drop the axe, put out a hit on anybody who wasn't, at least in his mind, 100% sold out to his intentions, his purpose, his dreams, his life, whatever it was. Right? He, had, he had his wife killed at one point. Went on to kill the in-laws, of course. Uh, he killed uh, one of his uncles. He even had some of his sons killed because he feared that they were getting too popular and were going to be more popular than himself. Right? This is a guy who was totally consumed with his accomplishments, his achievements, the accolades in life, this life that he had built for himself, this kingdom, this power that he had secured, he had made for himself. All of this was like <laughs> these chains, or this pretty intense restraint that had been forged around him. You could dare, dare we say, not dare we say, it's going to be quite accurate to say, that his accomplishments, his life, his kingdom, his power, this was his God, his idol, that demanded full obedience, and he was all too willing to bow the knee to. And so, of course, when he hears word that there is one born who is going to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, this place, this kingdom that he is overseeing well he starts thinking okay how do I deal with this threat and so he figures okay well uh, let's send the wise men down there on their way but then hey you know when you find this baby wherever he is come back and tell me where he is so I can go and worship him all the while knowing his devious intentions and when that plot that plan is foiled the angel leads the you know the wise men on a different way Herod flies off in a fit of rage and calls for the massacre of every young boy two years and under in the small town in the town of Bethlehem. Right, so that's Herod, and that's his reaction to news of the birth of Israel's Messiah. You know, and part of the thing is, say what you want about Herod, I think we could say that he he sort of gets it. Right? Whatever it is, or however he's led to believe whatever he believes about this little baby, he's actually right. And that this baby is not growing up all too interested in just blending in to the status quo or being a servant to Herod's kingdom or being a servant to Herod's intentions. No, this baby is coming for all the kingdoms of the world to take them, to transform them, to restore them as the kingdom of the rightful creator God. He's coming in not to just be a prop to Herod and to his life and to his agenda and his whatever his desires are. But no, he's coming to call Herod to fall, prostrate before him in worship, in submission, in trusting his life to him, in sacrificial worship and adoration. Right? And Herod gets that. And Herod just is far too consumed with his achievements, accomplishments, accolades, the life that he's built for himself to have anything to do with that. He's far too constrained by this God that he already bows the knee to to have anything to do with this Jesus and will do whatever it takes to get rid of this threat to his kingdom and the life that he's built for himself. So, that's Herod. 
he understands it in a way, ironically. And the thing is, you can kind of understand where Herod's coming from. What I don't, what's not maybe as easy to understand is the last set of characters. And I don't know if you picked it up in the text. It's not only Herod who's deeply troubled by the news that the wise men are bringing, but actually all Israel as well, too. Did you pick that up? All Israel is deeply troubled by this news that the wise men bring. I'm sorry, not all Israel, all Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is the epicenter, right, of at least the biblical storyline, you know, up to this point. It's the epicenter of God's dealings with his people Israel. It's really the epicenter of God dealing with all of his creation. And that Jerusalem is the place where God has chosen to take up some sort of unique residency there in the temple that was built in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. Jerusalem is the place where the religious establishment is, where the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees are, those who know their scriptures, who know when the wise men come asking. Well, the prophet Micah in chapter 5 says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Right? So they know this. They've been praying for this. And they have been, to a certain extent, longing for the day when this Messiah would come and he would deliver his people and restore the kingdom of Israel. And yet here it is, news that this Messiah is here, at least according to the wise men, and at best, they're indifferent, right? They know enough of their Bible to tell the wise men where they can go to find him, but they don't exactly go with him, with the wise men. Maybe that's because they, you know, these wise men have shady reputations and whatnot. But so at best, they're indifferent. At worst, again, they're deeply troubled. So what's the deal with that? Why in the world are they so deeply troubled that this Messiah, the one that they've longed for, they look for, is here? I mean, it could be. Well, uh, they know Herod. And the guy tends to not like deal too kindly with threats to his kingdom. And so, if they, you know, Herod finds out about this. He's going to go off in a fit of rage, which of course he does. So maybe they're a little troubled by that. Or they could be troubled because... Hey, they've been down this road before where there's been these hotshot would-be messiahs that come onto the scene and they stage a rebellion. They get these crews of people behind them and Herod has to come in and squash the rebellion. Or even worse, Rome has to come in and put down the rebellion and lay waste to the whole town or whatever. Maybe they don't want any more of that. Or it's also quite possible that, you know, they just kind of... I come to enjoy this comfortable, familiar, somewhat peaceful life and existence that they have for themselves. Right? I mean, you know, maybe it's nothing too fancy or whatever, but it's, it's their life and it's comfortable, it's easy, it's without too much conflict. I got it right, it's, it's okay, and, and I kind of I like it. Or Herod, yeah, he's got a lot of warts and all that, but he's actually done some nice things for us. Look, he's built up these great fortifications all around the city. He's put in some neat fountains and amphitheaters. He's even rebuilt our temple for us in glorious fashion. So, you know, it's not so bad. Or Rome, yeah, it'd be nice to be out from under Rome's heavy hand and taxation and all that. But hey, say what you will about Rome, they have secured peace for us. And certainly if you're in the religious establishment of the religious elite, you've learned how to play the system and get certain kickbacks from Rome. And so, you know, maybe you've learned how to acquire a life for yourself thanks to Rome and its power and its wealth and all that. All to say that it's 
quite possible as well, too, is that they've just come to enjoy the life, the comfortable life, the peaceful, the familiar life that they've built for themselves. And so news that there is this now king born who would have some claim to that life, who might have interest in not exactly fitting into the status quo or fitting into that life, but maybe unsettling that life or calling them out of that life into something different. Ah, a little uneasy about that. You know, and the thing is, I, I guess for me, the, it's, it's that reaction, that set of characters that maybe poses the most challenge or makes me to pause and think the most. Because there's something familiar about that. At least to me. Right? We're just coming off a month or, you know, a whole season where, of Advent where we are looking forward. Or we're, we're hearing, we're reading from the scriptures news of the king who has come and who is yet to come again. And we're looking forward to the day when this, count, when this king will come and finish the project and restore the kingdom in all of its fullness. And we are reading about that, we're praying about that, we're celebrating that in song together. And yet, I know, man, there are areas in my own heart and life that I am slow to hand over in submission to the reign of this king, even now. There are things in my life that... <laughs> You know, whatever, it's not all that fancy, but it's comfortable. It's easy, it's familiar, it's peaceful. And I'm not necessarily looking for that to be unsettled. And when things step in on my comfort and my peace and security, what all that, well, I know what Jesus maybe calls me to, but fear, anxiousness, bitterness, whatever, all it takes in and seems to have more of an impact on my decisions. And so that's generally the thing from the passage, right? Three sets of characters with their each three unique, different reactions, which pose to us the general question, okay, where do you fit in the story? Right? Which reaction is your reaction to this one who claims lordship, kingship over all of creation? Right? Are you like Herod? Uh, you know, into your accomplishments and achievements and whatever accolades you've, you've secured for yourself. You're into this kingdom that you have invested your life and you've poured yourself into and you've built for yourself. And it has long since become more than just an interest or a desire of yours, but it's become a passion, an idol, a God that consumes you such that when you hear news of this other one who would lay claim to your life and call you to entrust your life to him, to bow down and worship, and to submit yourself, perhaps even in sacrificial worship, ah, no thanks. No place for that. Are you like the rest of Jerusalem? Right? Who knows the biblical storyline in and out? Spend time in the tabernacle or the temple or the church or whatever it is. Yet when news comes or when you're face to face with the proposition of this King Jesus and maybe indifferent at best or at worst or deeply troubled that this Jesus is going to come and lay claim to some of the most sacred things in your life. The stuff that you value, that you treasure, that you've grown comfortable with and struggle to hand over. Or... Are you like these magi, right? These uh, unworthy, 
certainly unassumed and unexpected sinners gathered around the baby, willing to sacrifice, go to great lengths and journey to find him, willing to bring their costliest treasures, and are falling down on their face in worship, in submission, trusting in a way to this baby, and experiencing out of that joy, exceedingly great joy. Which reaction is your reaction today? Uh, one last, uh, you know, element in the story. It's the element in the story that Callie and Fuzzy sang about. Uh, that, thanks to the rage of this maniacal King Herod, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they have to flee to Egypt and quite literally become the refugee king. Right? They have to literally leave behind the whole f- social support systems. Joseph have to leave leaves behind his job. They have to leave behind family. They have to leave every, behind everything that's familiar, everything that they know, to go hopefully find some sort of refuge in this foreign country of Egypt so that Herod can't find them. You know, and of course what this is doing, in part, it's foreshadowing really the whole life of this king. This king who's going to be despised and rejected. Uh, This king who's going to have to dodge and escape crowds that have this sort of intention to do him harm. He's going to have to do that all throughout his life. This king who ultimately is going to be betrayed and abandoned and handed over to be slaughtered by the religious establishment and the political authorities. It's this whole little refugee scene. It's foreshadowing really the whole life of this king. You know, and Matthew does this interesting thing where he says this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, it's actually a Hosea, where he said, out of Israel, out of Egypt, I called my son. And the interesting thing is, if you go back and you read Hosea, I think it's in chapter 3, where the original quotation comes, it's quite clear in that passage that the original context that the author originally was referring to Israel as God's son, whom God called and delivered out of bondage in Egypt, right? That whole Exodus scene and story. And so Matthew's doing a couple things here. He actually does a lot of, he has a a lot of quotations very early on in the story of Jesus. It's very, it's actually very theologically significant. We can't dive into all of this. But on the one level, Matthew is saying, look, all roads of the story thus far, all roads of the history of God's people and God's dealings with his creation. All roads of the Old Testament, all the stories of God's covenant, of his promises, of his dealings with the people, of his commandments and his instructions that he's given, all these roads point to this Jesus. The whole thing has been leading to this. This Jesus, his life, is fulfillment of everything that has come before it, right? This is the new epicenter. The other thing that Matthew's doing, and I think he's also saying that, and in this Jesus is kind of like a new exodus. Right? Jesus now is the new son who's being called out of of, of Egypt. And if you think about the old exodus in the Old Testament, right? That exodus, that was the grand salvation event of the Old Testament. When God comes... To Israel when they're at their weakest, most desperate hour, and he delivers them from bondage, he delivers them from slavery, he leads them through the wilderness, leads them into his promised land, gives them hope and a future and all this, right? That was the climactic salvation event in the Old Testament. It's like Matthew saying, yeah, there's a greater exodus here now. 
and in the life and ministry of this king now is God's climactic salvation work. Or in other words, it's saying, look, that this experience of being a refugee or this you know, foreshadowing of this whole life where he's going to be abandoned and betrayed and suffer and die, all of this, God has a purpose. That he is working this new salvation event. That this baby Jesus is going to grow up with the intention of absorbing into himself, into his life, into his flesh, all of the, the violence, all of the hatred, all of the fear, all of the sinfulness of this broken creation so that he might drown it into death. In part to make atonement for it. And to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay as participants in that sinfulness. But also, too, so that he might raise up victorious over that. So that he might be not just the refugee king, but also now the conquering king who can wrestle new life from the pits of the grave for his people and actually lead his people in the experience of that new life. Right? This is why wise men from the east are flat on their faces in worship before this king. And this is why these wise men are experiencing joy, exceedingly great joy. This is why shepherds are from the hills are making way to Bethlehem to be here, to see this king, this conquering king who is going to provide deliverance and salvation. That's why there's songs flowing off the lips of angels, songs flowing off the lips of Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, songs of celebration, songs of praise, because this is going to be the conquering king coming to bring new life to his people. That's why the disciples throughout the New Testament are going to leave behind their former lives. They're going to leave behind jobs as fishermen and tax collectors or carpenters or whatever to get in on what this king is doing and what this king is bringing. That's why the church throughout the ages and all around the world gathers every week to celebrate the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the coronation of this king. Because this is a king unlike any other king. He's not a king just obsessed with accomplishments and achievements and accolades. He's not a king who's into his power, into his kingdom that he's building. Right? This is a king from, from beginning to end. His life is for your life. A king who is long-suffering, patient, willing to endure death itself so that he might lead you into life to the full. He's a refugee king who knows the pain and the difficulty of living life in a broken world knows what it means to throw himself at the mercy of his heavenly father to protect and to guide and to lead. And so he knows how well to lead you and to shepherd you as he calls you to entrust your life to him, to worship, to submit. That's why it's such good news that this king would call you to worship. That's why it's such good news that this king would call you to even sacrificial submission to his reign. That's why it's good news that this king would invite you to search your heart and your life today, even as we begin this new year, and to see, are there areas in my life that, yeah, I've been clinging a little too tightly to, and I know Christ wants claim over, but yet I'm slow to hand it over. It's good news that he invites you to do that, because he's the king who lives to lead you into the life to the full, and he's the king who can do it, because he knows what it is. It's like, and because he has accomplished victory. 
So again, simple point this morning, this is no tame story. Right? It's not a story that blends in, not just part of the status quo or just part of the ethos of the Americanized Christmas holiday, right? Uh, this is a story that stands out. This is no ordinary king either. This is a king who's coming for all the nations of the earth. He's a king who's coming for the most unsuspected, for the most unworthy. King who has no desire to be a prop to life as you want to live it, whatever. There's a king who's calling you to worship, to entrust your life to him, to submit yourself in sacrificial faithfulness. And it's a king uh, who's unlike any other, but lives for your life and lives for your life to the full. Who's long-suffering, patient, willing to endure, all in love for your sake. And so two questions as you go. One, how are you doing with that? How are you doing in trusting your life, submitting your life, bowing the knee to this king? We all bow the knee to something. How are you doing bowing your life, your knee to this thing? Are there areas in your life, in your heart, that, uh, whatever, you've had, had a tight grip on, you've been unwilling to hand over? And the things you've been dabbling in, relationships that you've kept distant or whatever, uh, activities, whatever it is that you know Christ once claim over, is calling you out of, and yet you've been slow to do it. Maybe this year, as we start the new year, you hear this call to worship, to entrust your life to him, and you come and you bring those things and you throw it at his feet and you plead for his mercy and his help to lead you into that. You know, and then just the last question that comes to my mind as I think about it and I think about us as a church moving into this new year, how are we doing giving testimony and giving witness to this king who is so radically other, who doesn't fit in, who doesn't blend in with the status quo, who doesn't just kind of meld into the general ethos of whatever, but stands out. And in standing out, in his, all of his holiness, he beckons the world to himself, and he comes to bring deliverance and salvation to all the kingdoms of the earth. Our job is to make sure we're fully aligned with that king, and also to make sure we're giving proper witness to him. And so we pray that God, in his mercy, would lead us in doing that well in this coming year. And we ask it all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.